0: From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa.
1: Welcome back to Terra Informa. I'm Ben Penner.
0: And I'm Caitlin McNabb
1: we will be your host for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world.
0: This week, Terra Informer Hannah Cunningham spoke with Madeline Stout, an undergraduate student pursuing a BA in planning who also works as a research assistant for University of Alberta human geographer Dr. Damian Collins. Madeline received a grant, from the undergraduate research initiative to look at homelessness and winter in Edmonton, where she investigated topics such as how weather factors into homelessness responses in Edmonton, and if the city's homelessness policies take adaptation to winter weather into account.
1: This week's interview will give us a researcher's perspective on how exposure to Edmonton's weather affects those who spend extended periods of time outside during the winter months. The conversation investigates how climate change-related impacts are affecting Edmonton's housing insecure and homeless populations and looking at what it means to be a winter city.
0: But first up, we've got some environmental news headlines.
1: A study revealed that the water in Victoria Harbour is likely the most polluted water along the British Columbia coast. The OceanWise program, called Pollution Tracker, examined 55 communities along the coast of British Columbia and found that the Victoria Harbour and Fraser River are the most polluted out of the areas researched. The three-year study consisted of analyzing sediment and mussel samples from various locations, ranging from Prince Rupert down the coastline to Victoria. The results can't draw conclusions about risks to human life or marine life, however they do provide a baseline for future tracking. A number of pollutants found in the water are historical contaminants that are reflective of Victoria's industrial history. For example, the study found polychlorinated biphenyls, or PCBs, which used to be used in things like coolants, flame retardants, and paint, but are now banned. It shows just how long these contaminants last in our environment. These results support findings that killer whales along the Victoria and Washington coasts have been found to have the highest concentrations of PCBs in any mammals in the world. Non-pollutants found are historical, which points to the need for all Canadians to be aware of what we are putting into the environment since substances will often eventually find their ways to our beloved coasts. The study's findings are projected onto an interactive map on the website PollutionTracker.org where you can see the exact composition of pollutants found in specific areas.
0: controversy is rising among Edmontonians over a proposed 23-hectare solar farm planned by EPCOR to be built in the Edmonton River Valley. Although many are supporters of the expansion of solar and the idea to power the E.L. Smith water treatment facility this way, the location is the source of contention. EPCOR says, to maximize efficiency and cost of the project, putting it on the empty land they already own right beside the facility is ideal. They say that they have mitigated risks in order to ensure that the overall impact will be positive. But some environmental and community groups are opposed to the development of the River Valley due to worries about disturbing wildlife and setting a precedent for further urban expansion into the treasured parkland. Proposed ideas for alternatives include rooftops and a nearby transportation and utility corridor the project would see up to 45,000 panels installed, generating up to 20,000 megawatts of power annually. As the city deliberates the rezoning decision, an open house was held on February 13th to incorporate public input into their considerations.
1: A report from Edmonton City Auditor David weem has revealed some disappointing numbers about the city's residential waste diversion rate. Edmonton's goal was to divert 90% of residential waste from landfills and the waste management facility has been recognized as best in class for years. The City Auditor has called Edmonton's figures unreliable and instead calculated new diversion rates. He calculated these rates by looking at waste entering the facility, the amount of this material that is recycled and composted, and then the remaining amount taken to landfill. The results were much lower than the goal of 90%. The best performance in a given year was a rate of 49.5% diversion in 2013. The worst performance was 37.5% in 2016. These numbers have been decreasing since that time. Why is this happening? One finding was that 25% of recycled material went into the landfill because it could not be sorted properly. Deputy City Manager for Operations Doug Jones also explained a decrease in diversion rates because Edmonton started accepting commercial, industrial, and construction waste in 2012. Suggestions to increase waste diversion were to require homeowners to separate organic waste and ban items like textiles, glass, and plastic grocery bags from garbage. It was also found that Edmonton has no requirement for apartment buildings to have an option for its occupants to recycle. The discussion of a new waste plan took place on February 23, 2018.
2: Last week, Marine Renewables Canada updated their energy mandate to include offshore wind projects. Marine Renewables Canada was previously only focused on tidal and wave energy, but with a recognized increasing need for energy production and the e- experts at their disposal, the MRC has chosen to expand their horizons in hopes of expanding our coastal renewable energy collection. The MRC came to be from the ashes of cancelled government funded projects in the Vancouver Island area in 2003. After the government withdrew this series of tidal and wave projects, the experts and industry members continued to meet and eventually came up with the Ocean Renewable Energy Group, or OREG, in 2004. And they later rebranded as the Marine Renewables Canada in 2012.
3: The park rangers of the Edmonton area are looking into some recent incidents where meat has been left out for coyotes. The rangers have been quoted saying that the meat has been reported in the Mackenzie Ravine and they will, start, quote, use whatever authority we have to enforce to try to solve this, end quote. In the past years, there has been an increasing amount of research into the wild coyote populations of the Edmonton area. This research has been done by the University of Alberta in coordination with the City of Edmonton looking into how these coyote populations behave in the city, such that negative human-coyote interactions can be limited.
2: Around the YEG, we have some big events coming up in the next while. Starting off with the IPCC's Cities and Climate Change Science Conference, held here in Edmonton on March 5th to 7th. The conference will bring together academics, policymakers, city planners, scientists, and more, and will be focused on inspiring the future of urban and climate change research globally.
3: Next up, we are hearing an interview with me, Hannah Cunningham, and Madeline Stout, a research assistant here at the University of Alberta, who has looked at winter and homelessness in Edmonton, and to what extent the city's homelessness policies consider adaptation to winter weather. We also talk about the ways that climate change may impact Edmontonians facing homelessness or housing insecurity, and what really makes Edmonton a winter city. Hi, everyone. My name is Hannah Cunningham. And today we're going to be talking to Madeline Stout, who is a research assistant in the human geography department. And we're going to be talking about climate change and how homelessness can factor into the conversation and the different impacts on homelessness. So welcome, Madeline. Thank you so much. So my name is Madeline. I'm in my last year
4: of a BA in planning um, and have been working with a human geography professor, Dr. Collins, on some kind of human geography related topics, mostly looking at homelessness and um, the right to housing, human rights, which is kind of a a recently a news topic in Canada with the new um, housing strategy. Um, so uRI wonderfully grant uh, gave me a grant to look at winter and homelessness specifically in Edmonton, and I was trying to see um, to what extent homelessness policies considered. Um, how they'd have to adapt in winter and to what extent Edmonton's winter city policies considered that kind of very, very necessary need group. Um, and we do often think about homelessness, but it's definitely people who are facing housing insecurity or low income as well. If you can't afford to heat your house, if you can't afford to buy your child a new winter coat, mm-hmm. um, those are gonna, that's going to bring up problems as well. And then, of course, people who are lacking in access to warm, dry shelter. So, yeah, looked into those policies, found... Unsurprisingly, not a whole lot of overlap. Um, Definitely some really important initiatives happening in the city, trying to protect people when things get dire. Um, But I would really love to see some more proactive approaches. Um, So rather than opening the LRT when it's minus 20, which is definitely a a mechanism that has a role to play, but how do you actually reduce the people who need the LRT? Um, And a lot of that is going to be housing first type initiatives. Once you house people, a lot of the other problems are easier to deal with. Something that's also interesting to note, and I kind of touched on it already, is uh, extreme weather is not great for pre existing health conditions, and that's something that's pretty common in chronic, in people who are chronically homeless, living outside. It's not great for your health. That's not a, a revolutionary um, uh, perspective, but extreme heat and extreme cold can really be detrimental to those existing conditions, particularly cardiac and respiratory. Um, and of course, other common characteristics to homelessness, um, history of mental illness or substance use, anything that kind of impairs your judgment um, can further increase your risk
3: of getting hurt, essentially being in danger. We often hear Edmonton being described as a winter city, a title that can be seen displayed on banners around the city and hashtagged on Instagram photos of outdoor skating rinks and ice castles. But what does being a winter city really mean? What do you consider the baseline for being a good winter city? What is this whole thing about Edmonton being a winter city, yeah. besides just that we have a really long winter? <laughs> um, yeah, so the
4: Winter Cities movement is kind of an international um, affair, issue I suppose looking at yeah northern cities that are very cold and how they need to think about planning differently think about how they design their cities differently because of extended winter months um the city of Edmonton is a proud member as far as I can tell um they so we have a a winter city initiative um which consists of kind of a an original public consultation and then um kind of a vision like the the Winter Cities Initiative and then uh, an implementation plan which breaks it up into four working groups um, kind of delving into things like winter design, winter economy and different, how things are going to function differently and how when you design things well for winter it actually makes them better year round as well. The Winter City Initiative, I don't want to get well, I am critical of it, but it does do some wonderful things. Like there are some really wonderful ideas about how to make winter more enjoyable, less isolating, which is important for everyone. Um, But I really do feel that kind of the the baseline, the benchmark, the first goal of being, you know, a world-class winter city is no one freezes to death. Surely that's the absolute basic measurement is no one died this year. That was an accomplishment. Um, I'm neither an environmentalist nor a doctor, but uh, the way... Climate change will change weather. Could be really interesting to homeless health. Um, We might see more mild temperatures, but my understanding is we're going to be looking at more kind of weather events, so more storms, um, which will increase kind of health risks to people who are unfortunately stuck outside or stuck without appropriate heating in their houses.
3: The Alberta Affordable Housing Strategy includes a section on the sustainability of the housing system. Housing providers are better able to support Albertans if the system is financially sustainable. Creating environmentally sustainable affordable housing through meeting energy efficient building standards in the construction of projects will help reduce the environmental impacts and improve the energy efficiency of affordable housing units, reducing costs for housing providers. The Alberta Affordable Housing Strategy has created a target for 100% of new government-owned and supported units in 2020 and 2021 to meet industry standards for environmentally friendly and energy efficient design. How are sort of some of these initiatives um, incorporating like environmental sustainability or some of these different um, concepts? I know I've seen like sustainability sort of mentioned in some of these documents, but do you have any idea of how they're sort of trying to integrate some of these concepts into their plans?
4: I want to say the short answer is they're not like the definitely the chief priority is social sustainability, getting people out of harm, like, into a safe, supportive environment, and that is the number one priority. Um, right. A big struggle, so there's kind of the seven biggest municipalities in Alberta have all committed to ending homelessness in varying degrees by various states. Um, and, for example, in Calgary, a big struggle is affordable housing. Um, and so I guess something that could be part of their initiative would be when they're building affordable housing, targeting at this, making sure it's um, appropriately uh, Lead certified or sustainably environmentally built for energy consumption. Um, but when the priority is just to get people into housing as quickly as possible, I don't see that being a major consideration. Um, so housing first is kind of the current uh, way to address homelessness. Previous Previous homelessness policies really prioritized um, people getting sober, um, people taking their medications regularly, and they really need to kind of meet those benchmarks in order to be considered for um, subsidized housing or free rental-free housing. Um, housing First, as the name suggests, prioritizes housing. It functions on the idea that it's much easier to address things like um, addiction or any kind of underlying issues when you have a stable house. Um, usually there are no requirements placed on accessing that housing except meeting with a support worker could be once a month could be once a week depending on the organization and what their um, requirements are but essentially there's no caveats placed on you accessing that housing when you're going through a housing first program Um, there have been troubles with this because it really does rely on affordable housing it relies on those service providers being able to find rental units they can afford with whatever budget they have, whatever funding they've received. Um, So, for example, in somewhere like Medicine Hat, it's going to be much, much easier to find cheap rental, get people housed, move on from there, versus Calgary or even Edmonton, the bigger cities with the higher rental rates. Much harder to get people into units that are in locations that they want or near to transit or near where they want to be.
3: Are there any unique research topics in regards to whether it's city planning more broadly or housing insecurity and homelessness um, that come with Edmonton being a winter city?
4: Yeah, so (laughs) um, one of the most interesting things about this issue is, of course, the first thing that springs to mind is exposure, being stuck outside or not having access to um, a winter coat, boots, etc. But it is actually a bit more complex than because of a lot of the other Um, For example, when you think of cold, the big ones are frostbite and hypothermia. It's also really bad for your circulatory and respiratory system. Um, And so it's not only being exposed to that cold weather that kind of puts you at risk of those things, but also um, any kind of intoxication, um, being socially isolated without those supports. And those are characteristics we often see in homeless populations. And so their risks are increased beyond just that exposure factor. Um, And in Edmonton, that escalates because we spend so much time below, below zero. It's something for even people who are housed, for example, for example, elders often express feeling isolated in winter because they don't want to go walk on slippery sidewalks. Um, children get stuck inside because parents don't want them out in the cold. Um, or even just people are less inclined to go out for a walk or go out for a dr- drive even when it's that cold. And it is yeah, detrimental to everyone's well-being. Um, and that is something that the Winter Cities Initiative really does try and address and look at and improve. It's also that kind of isolation is also really important as a support network, and it's something that a lot of low-income and/or homeless people are lacking. Is that I can't afford to heat my house. Who can I stay with? Kind of thing. Not that that is in any way a stable situation, but it certainly helps kind of ease ease the edge. It is interesting to note that it is relative. So, for example, um, people who are dealing with homelessness in Australia are going to have a much lower tolerance for cold weather. They're going to start to see detrimental health impacts at higher temperatures than people from Winnipeg. Um, But they're also going to deal with those high temperatures a lot better.
3: Which impacts of climate change do you think will have or currently have the biggest impact on those who are facing housing insecurity or homelessness?
4: Yeah, so it's definitely kind of a mixed bag. Milder temperatures in winter will like will help a lot of people in their survival strategies, but things like wet, wetter weather, so more melting snow, more slush can be really dangerous to people who don't have boots to change into, socks to change into somewhere to go and dry off. Um, also, w- uh, summer can get quite dangerous when we look at drought. Um, the number one thing is dehydration, um, and it's kind of interesting to note that when it gets hot like that, we know that that's when the city actively shuts off public water. They turn off public water fountains, spray parks for valid reasons, but they're uh, really playing a role in cutting off that such a, such a necessary access to water when temperatures increase, and that's gonna that's gonna be something that will happen more often,
3: I'd imagine. What are some of the key challenges in dealing with homelessness and housing insecurity in Edmonton? So something that came up, um, for example, in summer, Service providers don't
4: really worry about people getting from the drop in in the day to the shelter at night and getting to their doctor's appointments. That's not really something, that's not a big issue. Walking is not a concern, but in winter, that time outside, or particularly like that hour between when the drop in center closes and the shelter opens, can be really quite dangerous um, when temperatures are plummeting and the transportation becomes a really big
3: question and specific issue. It's a ton of great information. So, yeah, thank you so much for agreeing to talk to us. No problem at all. Thank you so much.
1: <laughs> that was Hannah Cunningham interviewing undergraduate researcher Madeleine Stout on winter homelessness in Edmonton. In honor of the changing season, here's a little history lesson.
2: Have you ever wondered how the environmental movement got started? When did we begin to think about things like pesticides, acid rain, and panda bears? To help shed some light into the beginnings of the environmental movement, Yvette Thompson gives us a not-so-stuffy portrait of Rachel Carson, the woman who first spoke out against the dangers of pesticides.
5: Springtime brings a glorious life-creating wash over the Canadian landscape. The Earth's fertility is reimagined and recreated, painting bright streaks of color favoring green. Springtime also brings glorious allergies like mine right now. The first day of spring this year was maybe not as awesome as we would have hoped. I mean, we still had snow and salt, but the dawn of new invites celebration. or a hush. Silent Spring, Rachel Carson's seminal work, was published in 1962, only two years before her death. Rachel challenged every Joe, Bob, and Alice to consider humanity's impacts on nature and to consider specifically how synthetic chemicals impact the ecosystem. Silent Spring was the trigger that led to the ban of DDT production domestically. Rachel used her well-practiced scientific background to become an advocate for the earth. She had earned a master's in zoology much earlier in her career and was a practicing journalist for several years before taking time off to focus on writing. Her colorful use of language, calling synthetic agricultural pesticides elixirs of death, for example, unconventionally used science as a way to the heart. Silent Spring was a big deal. Rachel says in one of the last passages of her book, it is our alarming misfortune that so primitive a science has armed itself with the most modern and terrible weapons, and that in turning them against the insects, it has also turned them against the earth. Rachel absolutely changed the way that many people looked at the environment. So for your history lesson today, my name is Yvette Thompson reporting for Terra Informa.
2: Silent Spring is an environmental philosophy text written in 1962 by Rachel Carson. It outlines the negative human and environmental impacts of DDT, an insecticide widely used throughout the world.
0: If you want to hear more stories like that, check out our website at terrainforma.ca. And while you're there, look for the survey tab in the menu. We would love to get to know you, our listeners, and hear what you enjoy about the show.
1: Have you ever wanted to be on the radio? Terra Informa is recruiting. If you want to join our team and share your stories, check out the About Us tab on terrainforma.ca.
0: That's all the time we have for this week's show. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton on Treaty 6 Territory.
1: If you have any questions or comments, send us an email to terra at cjsr.com or tweet it at Terra Informa. Visit us at terrainforma.ca and subscribe on iTunes.
0: Thanks this week to our contributors Shelley joad Amanda Rooney, Carter Gorzitsa, Charlie Blay, and Hannah Cunningham.
1: We've been your hosts, Ben Penner
0: and Caitlin McNabb. Catch you next week on Terra Informa.
2: That doesn't really make sense, but whatever. Like, they only like get really- to hear it. Yeah, it's like you only hear it. So they can't be like, can't, like- what? <laughs>